87% of the day we're inside. So it doesn't leave that much time for the outdoors. Exposure to nature has been consistently associated with better physical health because nature is literally the antidote to the modern world. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, we are going to dive into some really cool free hacks for your brain. My next guest is Dr. Austin Perlmutter, and he and his father wrote a book called Brainwash. If you haven't picked the book up, I highly recommend it. And he has a concept that he talks about called disconnection syndrome. And disconnection syndrome is this idea that the modern world has not only changed our brains, but has disconnected us from each other, has disconnected us from ourselves, from nature. And his hacks, what you will hear is that in order for us to thrive, in order for our brains to start to work in a joyful, clear, and loving way, we're going to have to reconnect ourselves, not only to each other, not only to nature, but to our own brains. He had a statement in here that I thought was so fascinating, that if you want to change, you need to change the change agent itself, which is your brain. And he comes at it from such a unique standpoint. So in this episode, we dove into nature and he goes into the science on nature and why nature is such a powerful way to heal our brain. He talks about sleep and what we can do to get better sleep. So we even dove into the temperature in our rooms and how that affects our sleep. And then at the end, we talked about psychedelics. I have been fascinated by this idea that psychedelics can create more neuroplasticity. And you will hear his thoughts on psychedelics for changing the brain. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this discussion. I think you guys will too. I highly recommend his book. It's Dr. Austin Perlmutter. And this is going to be one you want to share out to the world because when each of us is living in a joyful brain, we all will create love and happiness on this planet. Enjoy this one. Hey, Resetters. As we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. 
So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled. And let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. I absolutely love this idea around disconnection syndrome. And I, I don't know why we have to call something a syndrome to bring attention to it, but it does seem to help us put some languaging around dysfunctional situations that might be occurring in our bodies or our yeah. brains. So can we start with just explaining, you know, I read it in your book, but let's bring my audience up to speed. What is disconnection syndrome and how did you guys come up with this? Where did it, where did it, was this birthed from? You know, I think we're all looking at ways to understand what's going wrong. There's a, a really weird scenario where in theory, we have everything we think we should need to be happy, to be healthy, and yet we aren't, right? We're not that mm -hmm. healthy. We're not that happy. So something's going wrong. And I spent a lot of time with my dad thinking through what is the breakdown here? What, what is actually driving us to, to, not, to not achieve the things that in theory should be happening? And we looked at the brain and we looked at decision-making and we looked at the larger ecosystem and disconnection was really the single best term we found to explain what was happening because it is literally a breakdown. It's a breakdown, a disconnection within our brains that makes it hard for us to act with empathy, makes it hard for us mm. to make good decisions. Uh, but it's also a disconnection from other people. And I think one of the things we're going to talk about today is it's a disconnection from nature. Yeah. It's a disconnection from the outside environment. And, you know, you can go through everything. You can say we're disconnected from our bodies, disconnected from our diet. Um, and I think that, you know, again, as a terminology, it, it helps to to use that as a term because then you can understand how the solution is reconnection. And you can do that mm -hmm. in a variety of ways. And I want to be clear on this. I am not advocating for people to have to go out and do everything explicitly that I say. I think any form of connection is meaningful when the default is disconnection. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So if you had, uh, you know, play doctor for a moment, uh, you know, I'm going to pay a patient in your office and I'm saying, you know, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm lonely, like, and, and you're, you're going to give me this label of disconnection syndrome. What are the classic signs? that tell me I have disconnection syndrome. 
Sure. Well, I want to be clear. I mean, we're not using this as a diagnostic code. It's not a DSM code. I think it is is more a a way of understanding um, kind of, again, a syndrome, a Mm -hmm. variety of different manifestations. Here's what um, where my brain is going is I, I appreciate that it's not a syndrome, yet it is helpful for us to like categorize our dysfunction. I don't know another way to say it, which is why I loved in the book when it said, you know, disconnection syndrome, it was like, yes, it allowed me to categorize some of the things I had been feeling. So how help us understand what falls into that category. In the book, we talk about this idea of disconnection syndrome, and we go through and define these eight characteristics, these central characteristics of this condition. So we talk about um, impulsivity, instant gratification, chronic inflammation, chronic stress, loneliness, mindless activity, and narcissism and poor relationships. And we really feel like these are the, you know, the kind of best manifestations of how our thought patterns are distorted by this disconnection syndrome. So if you were to go through the day, and look at the things that you were doing as far as how you were acting, how you were thinking. These are the ones where we really think that is evidence of this disconnection syndrome. And that's kind of the the outward manifestation of it, right? You can say, here's what I was thinking, here's what I was doing. But what's so interesting about this research behind the concept of disconnection syndrome is that it is really grounded in what is happening within our brains and how there is this disconnect physical disconnection as far as the way the neurons are firing and not talking to each other between these two regions of the brain, one brain being the more uh, highly evolved, we think of region called the prefrontal cortex, which helps us to make reflective decisions, helps us to engage in empathy, helps us to, you know, think beyond the present moment. And then the other part of the brain, which is the limbic system, the reward system, that seems to be more fixated on the impulsive type thinking. And we really feel like so much of what's going wrong can be seen as an imbalance between these two parts of the brain. What's super cool about this, though, is that there are things that we can do to physically change the wiring of our brain to rebalance that. So we're not always in this tug of war. Instead, we're kind of above that, looking down and able to make those changes. So, okay. Well, now you have have me curious. Um, Before we go into some of the details of it, let's stop at the prefrontal cortex limbic system. So one of the things that I'm smile when you say prefrontal cortex, because I feel like I have been looking for every hack I can possibly find to strengthen my prefrontal cortex. Do you either operate from one one of these places, but you don't operate from both of them at the same time. Is that how that works, or that's, is that's one really strong question. is one stronger and one weaker? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I don't think that there is a, a global consensus as far as how this works. I mean, I think there's the one story, the one that seems more appealing to tell, which is you are either acting from one part of your brain or another part. And if you're acting from this part, it's good. And this part, it's bad. But what seems to be more important here is that all of these areas of the brain communicate in balance, that it's Mm -hmm. a network effect of these integrated regions of the brain. And when we think about these two areas, again, the prefrontal area of the brain and then the, the limbic reward system, What seems to be increasingly seen in the literature and substantiated is that we want to have some degree of what is called top-down control. And what that means is 
you want to make sure you're able to reflect on your choices and not just act out of impulse. And if you think about the way that maybe many of us are acting in the course of a day, it tends to be the impulsive choices that get us into trouble. It's when somebody says something unkind and you yell back at them, or, you know, you bump into somebody on the subway and then you push them back, or you decide to buy something on Amazon that you definitely don't need, but the pop-up ad was at the right time, or you spend three hours watching, binge watching a TV show when you had planned to do something productive. These are more of these impulsive decisions and less reflective decisions. And I think what we can say is, In order to make more reflective decisions, more thought out decisions, we have to have the prefrontal cortex online. And you can see in the literature what happens when that isn't available. So uh, we talk about this very famous case of a guy named Phineas Gage. I heard about him. Yeah. And we've we've kind of talked about this person uh, in neuroanatomy and the like as this is what happens when a person gets a metal spike to the forehead, right? These, it, it kind of went in through here and came out and it took out part of the prefrontal cortex. And what was seen is that this gentleman went from being a, a relatively, you know, compassionate and balanced person to being prone to these fits of rage and very impulsive. So it tells us that part of the brain there probably has something to do with allowing us to make more restrained decisions. And Research like this enables us to solve for, are there parts of the brain that seem to be specifically involved in specific processes? And so he was one of the first. There have been many since where people, because of either damage from, let's say, uh, uh, an accident or a tumor, um, basically, we know that when that part of the brain isn't available, people tend to make worse choices. There's one other thing I'd say there, because I think this is really the most empowering part, is that Phineas, as his life went on, he he didn't die, as it turned out, right after he received this stake through the face, which is shocking because it was quite traumatic. He did, however, change the way that he acted over the years after that event. So while he was a little bit more impulsive right afterwards, it seemed like he was able to to kind of change his brain function and and become a relatively successful person after this accident. And that Mm -hmm. speaks to this idea that even if your brain is wired for bad choices, for low empathy, for for poor general uh, decision-making in the world, there are things that you can do to enhance what's called neuroplasticity. I'm sure it's not new to listeners of this show, uh, which enables you to literally modify that wiring in a positive way. So if Phineas can do it, we can do it. And we can change our brains to make better decisions and better actions more likely. So I think it's that is so important because what we put into our bodies, what we give our bodies, food or nature or exercise, provides the pathway to rewiring our brains. That was a lot. I love, no, I love that because (laughs) I stumbled upon Phineas's story like five, six years ago. And I was, that's what got me totally fascinated by the prefrontal cortex. So then here's, here's one of the thoughts I've had for some time as the parent of a 19 year old and a 21 year old is at what age does the prefrontal cortex fully mature? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've actually seen it um, variably reported. So I, I unfortunately can't give you a, a, an age. My my running number is somewhere in the mid-20s. That seems to be about yeah. the spot where the prefrontal cortex has hit some of those major developmental milestones. Uh, 
there, there are so many other things to consider though. There's something about dopamine where younger brains may have more sensitivity to, and potentially even more dopamine, which increases impulsivity when it's in a certain part of the brain. And, and really what you're looking for with the prefrontal cortex is that the top down suppression using dopamine again, but to calm down the other parts of the brain. So it may not just be that the prefrontal cortex isn't developed enough, but it's more that the other parts of the brain develop so quickly. And so they get oh. out of sync. So okay. there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but I think when you think of kind of the psychology, the philosophy of it, there's so many, <laughs> I think, fascinating correlates because we tend to to kind of judge people as though they're full people very early on and we blame people for poor decisions. But if our decisions are an outgrowth of our brain structure and our brains haven't finished maturing, uh, it just, it, it, I think it changes the way that we should be looking at the way people make choices throughout the lifespan, but especially in those formative years. So does that mean when you allow a 16 year old with a lower developed or not fully developed prefrontal cortex to get behind a car that we may be putting them at more risk because their choices may be different? Uh, I, th I think that's, um, that's definitely something to think about. I mean, Again, there are so many kind of modern day correlates. So for example, a 16 year old today uh, may be at a higher risk of texting while driving, which is an mm -hmm. impulsive bad decision and has been associated consistently with more accidents and more deaths, right? We don't want to be doing that. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you might have an elderly person who, for other reasons, uh, doesn't have a prefrontal cortex that is as capable of making those quick decisions. Because what we know is, you know, younger people may actually have the better ability to react quickly to uh, to things that come up while they're driving, whereas older people, for again a variety of reasons, one is just mm. potentially sight and hearing impairment, may not be able to respond as quickly. So there are, are all of these correlates to it. You know, at the end of the day, we kind of make these relatively arbitrary distinctions as to here is the point at which we think you are capable now of making this choice, whether that's being allowed to purchase cigarettes, alcohol, or getting behind the wheel of a car, um, and. If you decide, if, if I was the one to say we should wait till we're 26, I don't think that would go over very no, well. No, you wouldn't be very popular. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that'd be a good idea. What, so what is going to deplete the prefrontal cortex? Are there habits that we should be aware of that will make it so that our prefrontal cor cortex is less effective? Yeah, uh, I think the answer to that question is yes. And I think it's a very important question. Um, there are kind of a couple of different ways that you can look at this. So one popular way is looking at the work of Roy Baumeister, which is something called ego depletion. Basically the idea that you have a finite amount of willpower and if you use it up, mm -hmm. then you're no longer able to make prefrontal type decisions. So, you know, people will say, make all your important choices early in the day while you have the, the reserve so that later in the day, when you're making worse choices, they don't matter as much. Um, there's been some variable discussion as to how real that is. And there's some interesting work, uh, kind of apropos of, I think what you're doing with the fasting that thinks about whether it's glucose or fuel related, whether that's mm. kind of a, a cognitive metabolic reserve that enables us to make good choices. But I would say, uh, I look at kind of these three major factors that we can use to either improve our decision-making through helping the prefrontal cortex. And on the other hand, that can damage our decision-making through the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and those are sleep. I think first thing I always say is if you don't get good sleep, your prefrontal cortex isn't online. 
We've all been there. I could give stories. You could probably give stories. Listeners could give stories. When you don't get good sleep, you can't think clearly. Your prefrontal cortex just doesn't work as well. We can't focus as well. We don't drive as well. There are so many good examples. The other two are going to be stress and inflammation. So Mm. I'll pause there for a second. Stress takes the prefrontal cortex offline. It's, Mm. it's, It's such an important distinction to make, though. A little bit of stress can actually engage the prefrontal cortex, a little bit of positive stress. For example, um, maybe I'm a little stressed right now being on this podcast that can actually sharpen my thinking. Mm -hmm. It can shoot the right hormones and neurotransmitters to the neurons and the prefrontal cortex. And it, it, what it does is it kind of, uh, it cuts out the external stuff. It helps you to not focus on what's happening tomorrow, gives you focus on the present moment. That can be a good thing too much stress and for too long appears to actually damage the neurons in the prefrontal cortex, which I think is super important to understand. If you look at brain scans of people under chronic stress, there's atrophy in the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that enables us to make good choices. And we'll go one level deeper on the research here. In animal models, when you subject animals to significant levels of stress, The neurons in the prefrontal cortex, they actually retract and get damaged, they atrophy. The neurons in the amygdala, which is one of the parts of the brain involved with impulsivity and fear, they actually expand because they are responsive to high levels of cortisol. They do well in that. So if you kind of generalize that to humans, what that means is stress is a signal, high long doses of stress are a signal to bias your brain towards more limbic structures, towards more stress centers, which is basically telling me that we wire our brains to continue to be stressed when we're stressed for too much time. Yeah. So really important. I know that we all are aware of stress being problematic, but there is this feed forward cycle that we need to be aware of because when we're stressed, we're going to make worse decisions. Those worse decisions are going to lead to worsening of our brain function can increase stress. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention, we can go into any of these in detail is inflammation, which is super interesting because, you know, we've thought for a long time, the food that we eat changes us, right? Changes our bodies. Some people are talking about how the food we eat changes our brains. And the data here are pretty clear that if you eat a junk diet for decades, you have a higher rate of all the diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. One of the the mechanisms seems to be increases in inflammation. So high inflammation now predicts lower brain function later, years later. That's why people like my dad and myself, I guess, are so big on people eating healthy food now to prevent brain dysfunction later. Yeah. But what the research is now indicating, and this is only in the last few years, is that inflammation right now, just if I was to cause you to have inflammation this moment, correlates with worse decision-making, correlates with more impulsivity. So if you were to have a, a dose of inflammation that would probably change your decisions for the worst. It seems like it might take the prefrontal cortex offline. And again, we can go into this in more detail, but why that's so key is it means on a moment-to-moment basis, based on what you're taking into your body, you are changing your brain function and biasing yourself towards either better thinking, good decision-making, or worse decision-making, worse thinking. And It doesn't take much to consider that the modern world is pushing us towards the second of those two options, which is really unfortunate. 
Yeah, I, I so well said. I have really, especially over the last year, been I call it locked and loaded. I've seen not my not only my patients, I can feel it in myself. I've seen it in interactions in the grocery store that people are like locked and loaded in that amygdala. And even a little bit of stress seems to create these over-exaggerated responses. And as the pandemic went on last year, I kept reminding myself, hey, you got to exercise the prefrontal cortex and get yourself out of locked and loaded so that you can be a better human. Is yep. it that is it that simple? I mean, when I hear you say lack of sleep, stress, and inflammation, I'm like, well, there's the human, the problem with the human race. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, in, in some ways it is simple, and in other ways it it is complicated. Um, I would just say to your point, uh, I recently published an article that looked at kind of the immune and stress effects mm -hmm. of the pandemic, and your experience, I think, is unfortunately far from unique. Um, that when you look at levels of stress in Americans, they have gone up dramatically during COVID. Um, mm -hmm. In addition. Uh, levels of depression and anxiety seem to have gone up as well. And so at, at the end of the day, you know, if your reserve is usually here on a good day because you got good sleep, you ate good food, you had nice interactions with your friends and family, and you're economically doing okay, then there's more buffer before you get yeah. to the point of lashing out at somebody. But now let's say, you know, you're economically not as well off, you're not eating quite as well, you're not exercising as much, you're not getting outside as much before you know it, it doesn't take anything before you tap into that emotional circuit of the brain. And I want to be clear, this is kind of a preservation mechanism. When the chips are down, your brain just goes to a place of reactivity because mm -hmm. it's fight or flight. It's basically yep. do or die. And I think it is kind of one of the most amazing things that humans have that we can decide uh, to kind of prevent that, to try to bias our brains towards a little bit more buffer. Um, I think there are so many ways that you can do that, right? You can, to counter the stress, to counter the inflammation, to get better sleep. But I don't think people are aware of how quickly this happens. Right. That giving yourself a couple hours of extra sleep tonight is sufficient to change your brain function tomorrow. I love that. You know, we talk about exercise, we talk about food. These things matter. These things change brain function. But for many people, it'll take a while, right? It'll take some time before the gut microbiome changes, the immune system changes, before they're actually experiencing perhaps some of those benefits that translate into better cognition. Um, you know, some exceptions, for example, fasting, you might see benefits to having elevated ketones rather quickly. But as it relates to sleep, you go to sleep, give yourself good sleep, you will wake up the next day and I know I and other people will experience better thinking that mm. we can put our finger on immediately. So, true. Yeah. so I think, you know, again, we're all in this position where there's a lot more stress, a lot more anxiety, and unfortunately, a lot more depression. I think that giving ourselves better sleep, I, I will say in full disclosure, I just heard Matthew Walker speak last week, and he's always so inspiring. Um, but I think getting better sleep is one of those great first steps in yeah. helping to reprogram our brains. Yeah. Except getting better sleep isn't always, it's Not easier enough. said than done. <laughs> I, 100%. It's like, I, I, whenever I hear that one or I hear don't stress, 
I'm like, I get that. Inflammation to me is a lot easier to handle because I can go, okay, well, I got to exercise, got to change my diet. I got to fast, things like that. Whereas stress, okay, when I look at that, I'm like, I need a toolbox to be able to create some kind of uh, mental game where I don't let stress get me. And then sleep is a whole nother ball of wax that a lot of people really struggle with. You're absolutely right. I think that is such a good point. And I would hate to think that I'm the type of person to get up here and say, just sleep better and stress less because those are not actionables. Those are just me uh, getting up on the podium and telling people just like, you know, I hate this, but this is the way many doctors work, which is basically telling people, here is what you have to do. And if you don't do it, I'm going to blame you because I gave you the information. Mm. So that's actually a good segue um, into a couple of the actionables if you'd like to go there. Yeah, please, please. So let's go to the stress one first. Uh, the actionable there is you have to meditate two hours a day. No, I'm just what? Kidding. <laughs> That's another one that gets. I think we just lost say. a bunch of people. They're like off. <laughs> so let, let's talk about the stress piece. Let's go from stress to an intervention that we've alluded to here a little bit, but that is really not well utilized and can be done in as little as 20 minutes once a week has been shown in studies to have benefit, and that is nature exposure. Uh, You have all these delightful orchids behind you. I will say my orchids tend not to do nearly as well as yours. Um, (laughs) But, you know, just being around nature matters so much to our physical, to our mental health, and it's an intervention to lower stress. I'd say Mm. of all of the research around nature, that's probably the most consistent finding. Unfortunately, and perhaps many of you out there listening can resonate with this, Americans are spending their day inside. And it's not just Americans, people around the world are spending their day inside. And I'm talking about in America, a survey showing that 87% of the day we're inside, and then 6% of the day we're in our cars. So it doesn't leave that much time for the outdoors. Why does that matter? It's because exposure to nature has been consistently associated with better physical health. So looking at everything from cardiometabolic disease to better mental health, anxiety, depression, stress levels, of course, as I mentioned, better immune function, better decision-making, this stuff really matters. And it matters, I think, more now than ever because nature is literally the antidote to the modern world. If you're getting exposure to the outdoors, to nature, to these urban, or sorry, rural environments, it is telling your brain that you can let your guard down a little bit. Mm. And it is telling your body that it can relax. That is kind of our, forgive the pun, it is our natural environment. We have, as a human species, spent the vast majority of our evolutionary time in the outdoors, not in these urban environments that, uh, you know, where we shut out the outdoors so that we can make sure the lighting is good on our podcast. Um, (laughs) And I think that, you know, if there's any recommendation I make as far as the de-stressing techniques that people probably haven't heard of, it's getting a little bit of vitamin uh, N in your day. So there's a lot of ways you can make that happen. But I would just say, you know, research has shown, and this was pretty recent study that salivary cortisol goes down in as little as 20 minutes of urban nature exposure. This isn't driving out to the Tetons, Yosemite, Yellowstone. This is just going to, you know, some trees in the middle of actually Ann Arbor, Michigan, and getting 20 minutes, that was sufficient to lower cortisol levels. So I'm not telling people that they have to go out and do a multi-day camping trip. If you want to, fantastic. Right. But this this is a practical intervention that anyone can be taking advantage of. 
So sitting in my backyard with my favorite plants and trees around me, is that doing the same thing? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think, Dr. Mindy, that anyone has studied your cortisol levels uh, <laughs> in my backyard. Post in your backyard, but you I haven't seen so. my backyard. My backyard's looking pretty good. <laughs> if, if that's what I'm seeing through the window, um, <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing. But you know what? I, I think I think that yes. Like, if I had to guess, I would say that you are getting physiological benefit from being in your backyard, um, especially if you know the air quality is decent, especially if you're not getting a ton of noise pollution. I mean, I think there are caveats to everything. And one of the things that's quite unfortunate is now there's a lot of air pollution um, Mm. in certain places and especially in the West with wildfire season. And unfortunately, um, air pollution does kind of exactly the opposite of what we're looking for here. It makes people's decision-making worse. It increases inflammation. But if you have a backyard with decent air quality and there's some greenery in it, absolutely. Wow. Okay. And talk a little bit about, I've heard you say before that the longer you stay, the more exposure to nature, like in a week's time, the benefits continue to magnify it. Talk a little bit about what, what those benefits are. For sure. So let's just go through and talk about, you know, what are the things that seem to be most consistently found as it relates to nature exposure? I'd say Number one is lowered stress. Um, And then the other mechanisms would include improved immunity, uh, lower immunity and lower inflammation. Those are kind of the same thing. Um, Lower blood pressure, lower heart rate. uh, That's related to uh, the stress through probably lowering sympathetic tone. Um, There's also better recovery from illness where they looked at hospitalized patients. There's lower risk of dying early, which is basically mortality improvements. Um, but when you're thinking about kind of the dose response, which is what we're discussing here, uh, there have been a number of studies, they tend to look at different variables. So like we discussed with the 20 minutes of cortisol, um, there's another study looking at 90 minutes and how that decreases rumination, something that mm. has been correlated with anxiety, depressive symptoms, changes uh, brain activation patterns that two hours in nature seems to correlate with better overall health outcomes. Uh, And then there's some really interesting stuff around empathy and doses of nature, how uh, getting a a higher dose of nature, in this case, um, sending kids out into the woods for a couple of days compared to kids that stayed in the urban environment helped those kids to better recognize emotions on other people's faces. They were better able to interpret what other people were feeling. So I think that there is this, you know, kind of continuum. And I think one thing that's really important is if you are somebody who is, let's say, working in New York, you never get outside, um, you may experience far more significant benefits to being outside for a continued number of hours than somebody who lives in you know, rural Montana and is already spending a lot of time outdoors just by virtue of where they live. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, there is still that variability where I start to rec- make recommendations to people is... Start with the 20 minutes once a week if that's what you can do. If you can do more, if you can get to around two hours of nature exposure a week, that's fantastic. And I think to one of our earlier points, um, one of the nice things is just having some plants inside. Mm, Having some plants in your home. And I even tell people photos, paintings of nature. There's some data suggesting that that might help too. Um, But it's, it's something to do with the fact that 
there are these different mechanisms, one being what we inhale, what we smell, so even certain essential oils, one being what we see, so looking at potentially the green or even the blue of nature seems to trigger some stuff in our brains and bodies. Mm. Um, There's something about what we hear, so there's even some research around listening to nature sounds, kind of unsurprisingly, but I think it is trying to get those unconscious nature doses throughout the day in addition to the time we spend consciously interacting with nature that is key. And it's a combination of those two that is going to set people up for the most success. That's crazy. And I I mean, it's so simple. This is what I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, this is what I love about fasting is it's free and it doesn't take time. You just takes knowledge. And when I'm listening to you, I'm like, this is so simple instead of shutting everybody inside last year, maybe we should have been sending them out into their county parks. Yeah, yeah, obviously a lot to to think about as far as the, the risk benefit reward there. But to your point, I, I'm in a complete agreement. I think that there is such a tendency right now for people to get hopped up on the latest uh, biohacking solution that is you know, a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars, whether it's a supplement or some sort of a new wearable or whatever. And what fasting and nature have in common is these are things people have been doing for thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of years, basically being exposed to nature and going periods of time when they weren't inundating themselves with calories, let alone the highly processed calories of the modern day. And it turns out that our bodies are really smart. And if you give them what they're used to having and what's good for them, they will equilibrate. They will actually do better. They will adapt. And, you know, You could even think about the hormetic stressors of it, um, and obviously a little bit more so as it relates to fasting, but being outside where the thermoregulation sensors have to kick in and where your body has to think Mm -hmm. about, you know, what else is going on here, where it has to focus and pay attention to these things, because God forbid, there might be some weather you'll have to deal with. Um, I think this is really good for us because it activates parts of our brains and bodies that are otherwise stifled when we're spending our time indoors and snacking constantly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely some, some nice correlates between those two things. And the most important thing I think is they're both free, right? You know? right. If you don't eat food, you're not paying for that. If yep. you get out in nature, depending on where you go, you're probably not paying for that. Yeah. Of course, depending on the plants you buy, you might be spending a yep, whole maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you already know, but I want to make sure our listeners know that if you Google, uh, plants, NASA uh, advisory on indoor plants that help with air pollution. NASA has put together a list of plants that if you put them inside your house, they actually clean up the air within your house. Do you think they would that know it, best? Yeah. <laughs> right. I, who's going to go against NASA? It seems like they would know best. So yeah, they've, yeah. Been, they've been paying attention to that for a little while. I guess they actually have to know what helps in space. Yeah. And to your point, uh, you know, one of the things that tugs at my heart is just how many chronically suffering people we have in our world, whether it's mental or physical. I recently went to the CDC's website and I and they have a statistic right there. Sixty percent of Americans have one chronic disease and 40 percent of Americans have two or more and 90 percent of our healthcare costs are spent on chronic disease. And yet when I look at a tool like nature and fasting, and we just combine those tools, two tools together, we start to make a huge dent in the health of Americans and people worldwide 
but no, but but people aren't acknowledging those as legitimate treatments. Well, but who's going to be excited about those, right? Who's making money off of fasting? Right. I mean, there are those, right? But I think to conceptualize these two things, what they have in common is that they are taking away the junk that we are constantly consuming. Right. And unfortunately, most calories people are eating today are empty junk calories. So yes. basically not eating is the only way to ensure in some people's cases that they're not putting this garbage into their system. They're not forcing their bodies to constantly break down and try to assimilate what really shouldn't be in their systems. And similarly, nature, if you're getting nature exposure, it means you're not taking in, you're, you're not on ideally social media, you're not watching the news. Um, you're not sitting in your your apartment on a, a couch and, and you know twiddling your thumbs. You're not at a highly stressful job. And it's basically just the absence of the modern day junk that may be such a benefit. I mean, I think there's there's a lot more to it than that. Don't get me wrong. But I think a big piece of what makes interventions like fasting and nature exposure so efficacious is that it forces people to go outside of what it is that they tend to do, which we unconsciously tend to do, which is basically suck in through our, our senses, through our food, uh, a whole bunch of things that our bodies don't tolerate all that well. Yeah. Um, you know, you can use the word toxins, whether it's like toxic food we're eating or toxic media we're consuming. All of these things require us to process them and they become assimilated into our thoughts and our actions. So putting a brief break on that, going outside where the data you're taking in is maybe no processed food and some experiencing the wind or looking at an animal as opposed to, you know, uh, frantically scrolling on social media to see how many likes you have. I think that that is so important. And I don't mean to take away. I mean, this isn't talking about placebo effect. We're basically just talking about the fact that a lot of what's going wrong is the result of inputs that are really bad for us. And anything that breaks that cycle of consuming this garbage is yeah. going to be so good for us. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man. One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org, and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community, on this incredible journey. I am so proud 
to bring this to you. How do you think we're going to get the medical community to start to acknowledge therapies like this? Because again, I put myself in the shoes of the people listening and you can listen to a podcast like this. You get really excited. Your science is really clear. And yet I go into my medical doctor's office and I say, I have depression and anxiety and I come out with a pharmaceutical. Is there, is there a way we can undo that and unify this idea that there is a lifestyle that can heal and we don't always need to go to medicine for the solution? I would say yes. Um, I would say that one of the big problems that you are describing is that by the time a person shows up, especially at their allopathic doctor's office, these things have been going on for a long time. You know, uh, it's like metabolic disease. Mm. You show up a lot of the times I was testing an A1C and it was already eight. And this person wow. didn't even know the term prediabetes, right? The cat's out of the bag. And similarly, a lot of the times people were coming in and they were screening positive for major depression. We're not in the pre-depression phases, depressive symptoms. I mean, sometimes you're at the stage where the next best step is to give an antidepressant medication, not because that's going to solve all the problems that led up to it, but because you're so far along that, you know, and, and also because of unfortunately terms like compliance and adherence, that it's just not going to work to do anything beyond that. Now, where we should be going is to acknowledge this fact that in the modern day, if you do nothing, if you go with the flow, you are going to, probability speaking, have a really bad time. Yes. You already mentioned these statistics. You are going to, on average, develop at least one chronic disease. You're going to be on at least one prescription medication. You are going to probably have poor mental health in one way or another, whether that's depression or anxiety. And so this is the default reality. And any sort of intervention that, you know, comes in your, by the time you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, these things have really set in. Yep. So what I have found is that a lot of people coming into the doctor's office, they're there because things have gotten so bad that they're kind of forced to do something extreme. And at least a medication is that extreme thing that doesn't require much on their end. It right. doesn't require behavior change. It just requires taking this drug that messes with some neurotransmitter or messes with some metabolic function. So I think the key here is yes, to acknowledge that these other things work, but to try to look at how we could implement this upstream. Yeah. So I think that means when people are coming in who don't have depression, who don't have overt anxiety, we should still be talking about those things and saying, hey, yeah. look, Tons of people are going to experience depression. Uh, similarly, metabolic disease, person comes in, they don't have diabetes. Fantastic. But you tell them, hey, by the way, a third of Americans are going to develop diabetes. That's a one in three chance. What can we do to prevent that from happening? Yeah. And that's where you can start including these interventions. And we mentioned toolkit earlier on. I think that is key because what I have done many times, and I think I've messed up, is to tell somebody, here are all the things I want you to do exercise, eat like this, sleep like this, meditate for 20 minutes a day, uh, stop watching so much TV. And almost every time they would fail to do those things. That's not how human behavior has changed. We have to look at what people care about. Everyone cares about something, right? It might be their knee pain. It might be spending time with their granddaughter. It might be photography, right? Being able to go out and take pictures of the waves. That isn't so important. What's important is that we help people to get there, that we synchronize our goals with their goals. And mm -hmm. so if a person is saying, uh, you know, my mood isn't great, then 
I can't just assume that the next step for them is to say, oh, well, you should exercise. They might hate exercise. Mm -hmm. But if we can work something along the lines of their mood isn't great, we both want to work on their mood. Let's think about sleep. Let's think about, you know, getting some nature exposure. Now you have a collaborative desire to get to that outcome that you both care about where you're not boxing yourself into whatever intervention you think is necessarily the first round is the best round. Um, The one other point I wanted to make, which I think is really evident in the book Brainwash that we talked about, is that we so often focus on the physiology outside of the brain as central in in changing patients. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about insulin's going to change their their diabetic control. We're going to talk about an ACE inhibitor to improve their blood pressure. But what we don't talk about is that if you don't change the brain, how do we expect for behavior to change? How do we expect Mm. for thoughts to change, for mental health to change? And so any intervention, especially lifestyle interventions that can help improve brain function, I think have to be first in our line. Because Mm. if you change the engine of change, you've now opened the door to all of these other opportunities. If you change the way that you think, you can then get yourself to do the other things. Mm, if, you're, if you hate exercising, but you're willing to get better sleep, better sleep improves brain function. You may then later on be more willing to exercise. And so you're not forcing your brain to do the stuff it doesn't want to do. You're literally changing your brain to make it more likely that it will go in line with what you care about. Oh my God. I love that. So do you think, let's say I want to make a diet change, but I'm struggling. I'm addicted to sugar. I, I know the standard American diet's not great for me, but I, I just can't get myself past that moment of change. Would it make sense then? I love what you said. You can't, you got to change the change agent. Can yep, you exactly. all of a sudden say, well, okay, what I can do is go hike in nature. I can go to bed an hour early and let me try that for a couple of weeks and let me see, come back to the changing my food behavior and see if it's more effective. Can we for use sure. that, use it that way? You absolutely can. And, um, you know, I think these are things better worked on with a provider where you can kind of choose the outcome you care about and then work backwards and say, what decisions do I need to make to get me there? Yeah. And you'll find that there are many different decisions that can get you there. So if your goal is... Uh, let's say a person wants to lose weight, or let's say they just want to eat less sugar. The first step might just be to say, okay, well, I'm your doctor and I told you to eat less sugar. So that should get you to your goal, but it misses everything. It misses all the important variables. Mm. Now you get to second level and start saying, well, what are the decisions that led to you eating that sugar that lead to you eating that sugar? What are the situations in the course of a day in which you feel most compelled to eat that sugar? And then you start understanding, oh, it's, it's actually in times where I'm stressed or it's I find myself eating it when I'm at work and somebody has brought, you know, donuts in the morning. And so then you take another step back and say, well, what are the things leading to that stress and how do I avoid that situation where I feel compelled to eat the donut? And then you can think about those variables like sleep. People who don't get enough sleep eat on average hundreds of calories more in the subsequent day. So it's not just that, but when you put them at a buffet, they will preferentially choose junk foods over healthy foods. Interesting. Really important because then again, you have that person that's eating too much sugar. You might walk them back to, do you find yourself eating more sugar, more calories on the days after you get bad sleep? And they might say, oh my gosh, I do. So your intervention for this person is now four steps earlier than just telling them not to eat more sugar. You're telling them, let's say, 
what I want you to do is lower the temperature in your bedroom by three degrees because people who sleep in cold environments tend to get better quality of sleep. Now you're personalizing that and you're using science. And I think that these now you get so far away from, well, you just need to have more willpower and instead you're leveraging biology which I think excites people because everyone wants to be a little biohackery. They might not want to go full bore, but you start saying, oh, actually try 67 degrees. Ah, 67 is the number. That's our number, by the way, in our home. I was going to say, do you have, <laughs> do you have a chili pad? I 67 is my chili pad number. Yeah. We just, we have actually central AC, which is kind of rare in Portland. Oh, okay. But, um, yeah. It's that's, we again, we just saw Matthew Walker speak, and so we're we're re we also started with the uh, red light or the uh, blue blockers, red mm, goggles, yeah. and trying to optimize for sleep. But to the point here again, it's it's basically getting curious and being willing to experiment with variables that you're excited about, and not just the ones that you're constantly told to do, like exercise thirty minutes five days yeah. a week. Everyone's heard that. That's just not going to motivate people. You have to make it personal. I love that. One last thing that um, if you can touch on that is really emerging in the biohacking world, and I've been trying to understand it. You probably know what I'm going to ask you, and I know you, you I don't, recently- I don't. You don't? Okay. Well, I we have a biohacking center here, so we have like hyperbaric oxygen and things like that. But the one thing that's fascinating me right now is psychedelics. Okay. And when I first heard about psychedelics- I was like, yeah, it's just an excuse for people to go be, you know, to go use drugs. But as I start to understand the mechanism behind it, it sounds like psychedelics and microdosing amounts can actually rewire our brain for the positive. Is that true? Okay. So obviously a, a, a topic with a lot of um, baggage, but, yes. but yes, increasingly with some science. Um, I'd love to go back to where you started this, where you were feeling like people who were talking about psychedelics were just using drugs. Um, as far as it seemed like there was a negative sense yeah, of this. That these are, for sure. Right. And so I'd, I'd just love if you're willing to go into a little bit more detail as to yeah. what was what was the concern you had or what was the negative feeling around? Let's say there's somebody who said, I just want to do drugs. What does that bring up for you? That it changes the brain for the worse. Okay. And permanently. Yeah. This is this is such a good conversation. Um, this is the same thing that I learned in my medical training. And I think that it was kind of uh, was inherited by the, the social group that I grew up in. Um, you know, it's drugs are bad. I went to D.A.R.E. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was a kid, and they told yeah. me that if you try drugs, you're basically going to turn into a monster or something. And as I got older, the narrative was very much in line with what you just said, which is that drugs will alter your brain function for the worse. And I heard these stories of MDMA or ecstasy causing mm-hmm. people's brains to liquefy. Um, I heard stories of methamphetamine leading to people's psychosis, and then they're attacking other people. And a lot of things kind of came together to make me question that. I did decide to use uh, a psychedelic at one point, and it was an incredibly powerful and positive experience for me. And I only did that because I had reviewed the literature ahead of time that basically showed that number one, side effects have been overblown um, as far as the dangers associated with these drugs when used in the right ways. And two, that there are a, a number of really positive outcomes that have been seen, especially around mental health diagnoses. Um, so long story short on that, it made me question uh, a lot of what I had thought to be true as far as 
drugs bad, especially psychedelics bad. And, you know, to your point, um, there's increasing information as to how psychedelics may be able to uh, positively influence physiology. So certainly you get this transcendent experience, or at least most people do when they experience higher levels of some of these molecules like psilocybin, MDMA. Um, But that's kind of the psychology of it. It's saying, oh, well, I had this wonderful experience and now I feel better. My mood has lifted. The the biophysiology or pharmacology of it um, and what it does on a molecular level is is really interesting to me. And one of those mechanisms that you touched on is that it seems like psychedelics may augment positively neuroplasticity. They may actually help to improve brain function through increasing connectivity and plasticity, especially in the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. So why is that so important? These are regions of the brain that seem to have impaired neuroplasticity in conditions like depression. So, um, I posted about this a while ago because I thought it was so interesting is that in conditions of depression where you have a decrease in plasticity or the ability to change the brain, this is, for me, it's a physical embodiment of what I call stuckness. The brain becomes stuck in certain patterns of thinking, becomes less able to change itself in in a way or form in response to the environment. And so certain psychedelics, um, So research in LSD, ayahuasca, psilocybin, uh, and certainly in ketamine appear to augment neuroplasticity. And there's actually a study I think just came out in the last week. This is an animal study showing that psilocybin um, had a positive effect on neuroplasticity. Um, And so, again, this is all very early, and I want to be clear on it's, it's not like this has been out there and established. It's not like we have massive sample sizes. But I think the first stage to this is asking pros, cons to psychedelics, um, as far as what they've shown in the literature and as far as what we're worried about, um, as it relates to what happens to people if they use these molecules that are, they're really not addictive. And in many cases may actually help to mitigate addiction. Um, I haven't been convinced that there have been any long-term large effects as far as downsides to people using these, even recreationally. And then from a, a more medical and interventional perspective, I think there's a lot of literature showing that when done in the right set and setting, those are the correct terms as far as having the right mindset and being in the right location, the right context, these can be the most meaningful, spiritual, and positive experiences of a person's life. So so fascinating. As, yeah. And you know what? I think all of us um, you know, are, are still fighting this urge to say drugs bad yeah. um, and to basically tell people stay away. But the fact of the matter is, as we've said many times, the modern life is doing no one any favors. Most people are having a pretty rough go. They are having a rough go because they are stuck, because they are disconnected. They are trapped in patterns of bad thoughts and bad actions. And these molecules coming from various species, plants, let's say, so fungi, ayahuasca, um, potentially even the cane toad, these are, are molecules that are naturally derived that appear to help people get unstuck. And I think there is this kind of uh, natural extension of the work that is done with nature exposure, with nature intake. So I'm in that I'm going to put in, you know, eating plants, let's say, with their phytonutrients that might influence our physical and mental function. And then talking about these really intense molecules that can also do that, but at a much higher level. Yeah. Um, 
This is the part where I say the general disclaimer. I'm not endorsing these for the average person. I think that there's still a lot to be said for doing them in the right way. And I think that you should go through legal channels as much as we can, because that's hopefully going to be the way in which these are done most safely. But I do have to say, like, there is this piece of me that is, I'm not a countercultural kind of guy, I guess, but the average person's doing so poorly. Like, why are we so concerned about keeping people away from these drugs when we give people drugs that do so much worse, where we have legalized alcohol and cigarettes that are killing millions of people? Um, I don't know that there is any real good data that these have been a, a major deficit for people as far as lowering quality of life. And even if it was a net neutral, it just seems like our government's priorities should be placed on other conflicts as opposed to you know, ensuring that somebody doesn't get access to one of these mind-altering substances. Yeah, so well <laughs> said. And thank you for opening my mind yeah, on it. I, I hear more and more people talking about it and experts like yourself, and it just has me intrigued. And I always say as somebody who has an addictive personality and I can get obsessed about certain things, I, of course, want to research it all and understand it all to make a decision. Is it feel right for me or or not, which is really what I hear you advocating for too, is that we all need to really dive in and understand the risk benefit costs and if it's a right path for us to take. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, so Oregon recently decriminalized most drugs, but also they set up an initiative to kind of study protocols for the use of psilocybin in clinical settings by trained therapists. Um, it seems like in the very near future, these molecules will be available to people with uh, mental health diagnoses. Mm. So right now, ketamine is legal. You can go to a ketamine clinic. You can get it if you have treatment refractory depression or treatment resistant depression, but you can't go out on the side of the road and you know pick up some ketamine. That's still illegal. Mm. Um, but the bigger picture for me here again is we have diseases where we have a diagnostic code. So for depression, if you meet five of these criteria for two weeks, you can be diagnosed with major depression, and then you can qualify for various interventions. Mm. But I think the upstream piece of this all is to say, look, maybe people don't have major depression as diagnosed by meeting these specific criteria, but it doesn't mean that they're in a good spot. It doesn't right. mean they aren't trending towards depression. It doesn't mean they don't still have depressive features. And I think that is now the default where it's just like, you're, you're fine until you hit a diagnostic code. And then all of a sudden you have a disease and here's what to do about it. And I think what's super interesting about psychedelics is that it changes our mind, changes the brain, it changes mm. the way we perceive the world and seemingly in a good way. Let's just bring this back with one more little bit of research. People who use psychedelics have more nature connectedness and have more empathy compared to others. Interesting. It is. It is a molecule that takes you out of the you. It removes a little bit of the ego. It takes you out of that trap. Uh, what's been called the default mode network in the brain correlates with ego and activation of this network uh, is thought to underlie certain aspects of mental health issues. And it kind of shuts that down. So it, it connects you with the bigger picture, with other people, with the natural environment. It takes you out of this need to constantly be trying to, you know, better the me, me, me. And whether it's through psychedelics or other means, I can't help but feel like that is something that we really need a dose of. And you can yeah. get that from nature. Little nature exposure increases empathy, increases social connection. Um, but psychedelics do shake things up in a more significant way. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for entertaining that question. <laughs> this is, I've enjoyed this so much. I feel like I could keep chatting with you and um, I feel a hundred percent in alignment with your mindset around, we need to start to make different choices because the world has changed. I really, really resonate with that, with that. I, and I want to get that message out. So thank you so much for so um, eloquently articulating that. I think it's just a message people need to hear. So appreciate you. I have five questions for you okay. that uh, I want to finish up with couple of them. One, I'm actually really intrigued to hear what you have to say, but let me start off with, we're starting a book club uh, and the list of every, every one of our guests' favorite book. What mm. one book changed your life or do you feel like you, everybody should read? Yeah. I'm going to say a book here that I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that somebody else may have said, uh, okay. I'm going to go Singer's Untethered Soul. Oh, Yes, we just, it's so funny you say that. Yeah. We just discussed this it, with my team and I just got everybody a copy of Untethered Soul because I was like, we have to start getting people to see the voice in their head. So I love it. That was, that was you, you actually are the first guest to say that. Okay, so great. that was awesome. Okay, what is your favorite brain hack when you feel like you're operating in a state of anxiety? What, what's your go-to? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I have, so, so there's two things that I can do. One is to try to channel it because if you look at anxiety as energy, that is just being put in the wrong direction. Uh, sometimes I'm able to convert that into action. So sometimes when I'm anxious, the right thing to do is actually just to, to do a, a job, uh, mm -hmm. to put on some motivational or not motivational, but just intense music and do work. Mm -hmm. And then I can relieve the anxiety because I've actually accomplished it. I've converted it into action. But let's say it's anxiety for something I can't do anything about. Um, you know, I think a little mindfulness will go somewhere. But for me, I think exercise is more effective. Again, it's kind of the converting it into something else. In this case, physical activity. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll find that either a run or some other uh, anaerobic exercise does well for me. Mindfulness, meditation. Yeah, I, I do it every day, but I don't use it acutely as much mm -hmm. as a way of uh, calming down the breathing exercises I will do sometimes. Yeah, I love that. Love that. What kind of breath work do you like? Do you have a, a style? You know, I, I just um, so I listened to James Nestor uh, actually a couple of weeks ago as well. And he's talking about box breathing and all the like. But um, I used to do a lot of free diving. Uh, and so a lot of that was just kind of the breathing exercises to prepare yourself for holding your breath and like, and I will still find that doing just deep breathing, um, and as well as, as holding my breath a little bit, or even hyperventilating a little bit, which I don't recommend to people uh, are good ways to help me to clear my head. Mm, and I love that. I, I don't yeah. call myself a breathing expert. So I would yeah, yeah. highly recommend you listen to people who, who do more with that. So a lot of our guests do breath work and that's why, and they all, there's a lot of different styles. So that's why I was curious if you were to be put in the position that Mark Zuckerberg is in right now, and you got to make some changes to social media, Facebook, what changes would you make? Yeah, it's, I guess the first question would be, does it still have to be financially profitable or can I just, if I you am can, Mark no, Zuckerberg, you if, can if do I whatever have, you want. Great. So, I mean, the first thing I do is get rid of ads. I'd get rid of tracking. Um, and then ideally I'd just set it up more so that people were benefiting others for their mental health. Um, mm. I mean, 
I think so much of what's on there now is not so subtle as far as it being commercially uh, a commercial intent, either ads mm-hmm. or just attempting to get people pulled off site for clickbait. So I, I, w- I think I would try to um, bring in aspects of what has been successful in Clubhouse. Um, yeah. Not that I'm necessarily saying that platform will endure, but people do want to get together and have interactions, social interactions. And I think setting up some way of having more quality, potentially even moderated interactions on a platform like Facebook would be an amazing way to pull people back into that platform and to ensure connection. But I think it can't be monetized. Commercialization, at least, would have to be more along the way of, of podcasts where you say explicitly, this podcast is brought to you by blank. And then you go into your non-sponsored content. Um, so I think, yeah, more more group-based setting and more of the actual connecting with other people. Um, and then I guess there would be, if I had all the funds, educational content. Mm, Create free educational yeah. modules, bring in the world's best experts and teach them, you know, have people come in and teach you how to sleep. People come in, teach you how to exercise, put up the videos. We already know it's super engaging. Um, but again, make that free to audiences because, you know, uh, I don't know if you, um, follow Andrew Huberman at all, but, I um, do. Yeah. yeah. So, so he's done this wonderful thing where he's just putting out this really phenomenal scientific content on his podcast. And I just feel like even though, you know, there are tons of people out there doing this, it just hasn't been done in such a way that it's accessible to people in this mm-hmm. bite-sized format. So uh, the more we can democratize making the basics of scientific understanding known to the world, the better. And I think Facebook I would be that. an awesome opportunity to do that if the resources yeah. exist. Oh, love that. Okay. If you could go back to your self before medical school, your pre-med self and give him some advice, what would you give him? Uh, yeah. Uh, so Again, I kind of have two things. One is um, to start doing the self-investment earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's all kind of like I wouldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for things happening exactly as they did. But to, to start asking certain questions about you know who you are and what you care about earlier. And then the second piece of advice would be to say, you're not going to do anything like what you think you're going to do. So just <laughs> don't, get too, don't get too stuck on making sure you um, that you're doing everything perfectly. I think a lot of that a lot of 20 something year olds should be given that advice. How many different career changes as we start to age do we have and and different paths that show up for us? So I absolutely agree. I think they should also be told even earlier than 20s that most adults are pretty miserable, even though they can sometimes hide it. And being serious isn't a mark of success. It's just a mark of losing fun. And so like, when you're looking out there to all these adults that seem to have it together, uh, it's not really the case. So don't be so hard on yourself and, you know, appreciate that there's more to the picture than meets the eye. I love that. Okay. Last question. If you had one message for the world that you could get into everybody's brain, what would that message be? Hmm. How complicated can the message be? As long as it can stick in their brain, it can be as complicated as you want it. All right, I'm going to go something a little bit cheesy, um, but yeah, I, I think the the you are enough, you are loved piece mm. would be so meaningful for people to understand. I think so many people are out there just trying to find a way to feel loved. And yeah. um, if that already existed, I just can't imagine how much better our interactions would be with others where we're not so desperately striving for attention and for validation. 
Hey, Resetters, I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for all your wonderful reviews and those of you that have left me comments on iTunes. I just greatly appreciate your thoughtfulness and how much you guys are enjoying these episodes. And it it seems like you're enjoying them as much as I am enjoying doing them. One of the things that I've learned in just interacting with so many people is that we've really lost the art of deep conversation. And for me, the Resetter Podcast stands for having meaningful conversations with people who are thinking about health, about life, about mindset in a way that we may not be getting on social media or in mainstream media. And so I just want to say, give you guys a shout out and just say thank you for participating in this process with me. Because as much as I absolutely love delivering the information to you, I love even more knowing knowing that it's impacting your life. So please let us know if there's anything we can do to make this podcast more customized to you, to make it better. We are now officially in season two, and we are working to bring you the best conversations that health influencers have, that mindset changers can give, and to really deliver you something that you're not able to get anywhere else. So from the bottom of my heart, as I always say in my YouTube, from the bottom of my heart, I am deeply appreciative of you. I am deeply grateful to be on this journey with you and let's get healthy together.